It's been wonderful to be together. I greatly appreciate uh, the invitation to come. My family has uh, enjoyed it uh, very much. I've enjoyed the testimonies that uh, we have heard throughout the week. I enjoyed uh, working side by side uh, with Dr. Joe. I'd like to uh, agree with him regarding uh, reading the scripture and memorizing the scripture and how important that is in our lives and the way in which uh, God can use it in our lives. Uh, for example, uh, I've read passages so often not trying to memorize them that occasionally uh, parts of it stick. Uh, I found myself uh, praying a particular uh, phrase that seemed a, a bit strange. Uh, I, was, I was praying for uh, grace to meet my need. Uh, grace to help in time of need was the particular uh, phrase. And I thought, uh, I, I wonder where I picked that up. I wonder where uh, that came from, why I'm asking uh, the Lord for grace to help in time of need. It's the last phrase of uh, Hebrews chapter 4 uh, regarding the mercy uh, coming uh, from Christ as our high priest. Uh, and no attempt to memorize that. It just happened through reading uh, that it was implanted into my mind and was part of uh, my prayer life. Uh, I had memorized a lot of verses uh, when I was young. Uh, I can tell at what point in my life I memorized them by what version of the scripture it was. So if it was King James, then it was uh, before high school. And on the worst night of my life, the night that my wife was miscarrying, uh, I was laying in bed in the dark, and uh, was talking to the Lord, uh, and out of the blue uh, comes Isaiah 26, verse 3, uh, a verse I didn't even remember memorizing, a verse I don't think I had read for years, a verse that uh, was not present in my thoughts. Uh, it surely must have come from the Holy Spirit. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And it was comforting to me that the Holy Spirit was ministering to me in, in the time of need because where could that verse have come from? It, it certainly wasn't coming, uh, in a sense, uh, from my own abilities or my own uh, uh, thought processes intellectually. It surely was a ministry of the Spirit. And that can't easily come unless we have memorized the Scripture or unless we've read the Scripture well enough that uh, that is a database uh, that you can access uh, by the ministry of the Spirit when your eyes are closed in the dark uh, when you don't have access uh, to the Word of God. So I, I would agree with Joe completely how important it is uh, for us to read and read and read. And as he was saying, he likes to read through books over and over again. I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, read it over and over and over again. You'll, you'll find that uh, you'll learn more and more each time. In John's letter uh, to the churches surrounding Ephesus, we call 1 John the long one, uh, we find a number of truths uh, that he teaches us, uh, but he expresses himself in a way that we don't easily outline his book. He seems to go around the barn at least three times, maybe even four times, covering the same subjects. 
Uh, so you'll notice that the love of God comes up and then it comes up again later. You'll notice that uh, many of the tests come up and then come up again uh, later. By the time we get to chapter 5 now, he's certainly been around the barn three times and he's about to uh, summarize it again. So you hear some of the same things. I think because of the way in which he presents God, uh, we would say that the themes coming from 1 John regarding who God is are some of the most important lessons uh, for us to learn. I mentioned them on Sunday night. I want to mention them again uh, now that you've been through 1 John so that uh, you will think of 1 John in the way in which he's revealed God to us. Uh, the first one is that God is light, chapter 1, verse 5. And the implication, if we understand God as light, is that we must walk in the light in order to have fellowship with him. The second is God is our father. He tells us in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, that uh, how wonderful it is to be the children of God. And the implication from that is that we should have a family resemblance, that uh, we should be practicing righteousness because that's the seed that he's implanted in us. In chapter 4, verse 2, we're taught that God is incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus, his son, has come in the flesh. And contextually, that is the huge problem that the heretic Serenthus uh, had confused the people regarding, is that he denied the incarnation. Probably your most famous declaration in 1 John is that God is love. We see that in numerous places. Chapter 4, verse 8 is an example. And the implication is that we ought to love one another. If he has so loved us, then we ought to love one another. Uh, today in chapter 5, verse 11, we'll see that God is life. And he'll make very strong emphasis that this life is only to be found in his son. And those who have a relationship with his son have the life and have not only uh, the imminent uh, fellowship with him, but eternal life as well. And at the very end of the book, as he's closing, although you've heard some of these teachings throughout the book, but it's emphasized at the very end in chapter 5, verse 20, it's also emphasized extremely in the second and third epistles. He says, God is truth, chapter 5, verse 20. And he asks then, do I know the true God, not an imposter God? Am I living on the basis of the revealed truth of God or am I leaning on bad teaching, uh, for example? Let's turn then to First uh, John chapter 5 and look together at uh, this closing part of the letter. In preparation for that, let me ask a question. What are the three best reasons for being a school teacher? The three best reasons are June, July, and August. Okay. <laughs> if you're a realtor, you should know this. What are the three most important criteria for determining the value of the property? All right, you know that one for sure. In the field of hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation, what are the... Th now, these were primed by the first two answers. What are the three most important principles of hermeneutics? Absolutely. There you go. Context, context, context. Now, it's true that when we have read other portions of the scripture, 
we hear echoes and we say, I've heard that somewhere before. And so we jump to the conclusion that what's in that passage matches a cross-reference that we can think of somewhere else. Uh, you know, so uh, if Jesus says in John 6, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you can have no part of me, we immediately jump to the Lord's Supper, which has not yet even been instituted. It's not even been explained yet, but we just say like, well, the picture of that is so perfect. And it may be a good picture, but it wouldn't be the interpretation in the context, But he, because he's not even explained all that yet it wouldn't make sense so we have to in context interpret it in context so there'll be two difficult passages of interpretation in first john 5 uh, there is uh, the interpretation of the water and the blood immediately if you say where have i ever heard water and blood before you're going to jump to the conclusion well that's the interpretation then so can anybody think of any place you ever heard of water and blood before? Uh, on the cross, the, the spear, water and blood comes from the side, and they go like, oh, well, got to be that. Later on in uh, the passage, uh, he talks about a sin leading to death. And he says, I don't say you should be praying for that. Where have you heard of sins leading to death in, the, in other parts of the Scripture? Uh, you, you hear of, uh, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians regarding uh, coming to the Lord's Supper unworthily, uh, that there are uh, brothers who are sick, some who have even died. You also hear of the unpardonable sin in the teaching of Jesus. And you immediately say, well, maybe John's talking about one of these. But if realtors will tell you it's location, 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 uh, those who study hermeneutics are going to say, even though context is just one in the number one hermeneutical principle, it is overwhelmingly so important that you keep asking yourself every time you go to interpret, well, what's going on in the context? And in the context, we have problems with these heretics, these false teachers in these churches surrounding Ephesus who have believe Serinthus. You might say, well, where do we come up with Serinthus? Because the disciple of the Apostle John, Polycarp, told us that John was very angry at Serinthus, even to the point he wouldn't be in the public bath at the same time that Serinthus was there for fear that God would send the whole ceiling collapsing in because of it. And so we have connection with Serinthus, and if we know of his teaching, then we know that it matches the heresies that are taught in this book. It matches perfectly. So as we get into these passages, I think you'll find the answers much more easily given uh, when we think about what the problem of the book was. Another way to think of First uh, John are the, a series of tests that he gives that he asks us to use to evaluate the extent to which we can say that we have relationship with God. The first test uh, is a theological test, and it is, do I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son come in the flesh? The second test is, in one sense, ethical, but you could break it into two because it gives two examples. One is, am I walking in the light as he's in light? Am I keeping his commandments? Those kinds of things. 
the other, or walking as Jesus walked, the other is, do I love my brother? If I were to pick out of all the commandments that I would seek to follow of the Lord, the best summary of that is, am I loving my brother? Well, look now, thank you, for at the first two verses of chapter 5, because he's winding the letter down, and you'll hear him repeat those three tests again. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, uh, which is shorthand for the things he's been talking about, uh, him coming in the flesh, uh, 2 John, verse 7, these deceivers who've gone out into the world do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So, The shorthand here is whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you deny the incarnation, if you deny that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he's fully God and fully man, you can't come to the point where God the Father could satisfy his wrath against our sin. It requires the incarnation for salvation to be possible. And if we were to contribute in any way, which Paul says is impossible, Galatians chapter 1, if we were to contribute in any way, and Paul says it would have been based on works, if it could have been based on works, then Jesus would not even have come and there would not have been an incarnation. The whole purpose of the incarnation is because it was absolutely necessary for us to be saved. So whoever believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. There you have all three tests repeated in the last chapter in two verses straight out together. Those are the filters through which we examine ourselves to say, am I in relationship with God or am I not? And I exhorted you earlier in the week to let the authors of the Scripture have their way with your heart. Let the tension of the text cause tension in you. Every author writes to cause a reaction in the reader. And so don't be dispassionate about the passage you're reading. If the passage upsets you, the, read, the, the author intended you as a reader to become upset by this. If it makes you nervous, the author wrote it to make you nervous. If it makes you angry, the author wrote it to make you angry. So live the passage as the author wrote it and allow him to have his way with you. What you'll find now as you enter the end of the book, though he's calmed us down several times and saying, I'm not really attacking you, I'm attacking other people, is if you have felt like you lived through this book and you are uncertain of your salvation, he calms us down and assures us that rather than being insecure and uncertain, we can be certain if we understand how to know God. God doesn't want us to be doubting our salvations for the rest of our lives. He wants us to trust in His Word 
that when he gives us the gift of salvation, we have that salvation and that we are secure in him. Listen to how he develops this. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. In other words, how do I relate to God in the love that he has shown me? He says, cooperate with me then. Show me love back by obeying me and keeping my commandments. You might say, but that seems confining, restraining. No, he says straight out in the last phrase of verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Uh, We had in the 16 of us in our family that were here this week, uh, from a 10-month-old to a 2-year-old to a 3-year-old to a 7-year-old to a 9-year-old, we were very controlling of them as we moved about Yosemite. So if they were going into a raft to float down the river, we were only floating in the safest portions and they were wearing personal flotation devices and they had an expert in the raft with them. We were protecting them all along. When they were getting too close to the fire, we redirected them and said that's not a safe place to stand. When they were playing with sharp sticks in a manner that was dangerous, we stopped them from doing that. When we're out walking on the trail, we would say, that's not the side of the trail you walk on. Look, that's a precipice. You walk on the hillside of the trail and let us walk on the more dangerous side. So we are in between you. We're constantly protecting them. My sons who are older now and are full adults get to go hiking without me. And they bring back horrifying pictures of the things that they do on the tops of these precipices. As I've gotten older, I've gotten a a greater respect for heights and a greater respect for looking over the edge of a cliff. So don't come back and show me yourself sitting on the edge of the cliff with your, your feet dangling over. Obey my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. Chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God, meaning a believer who's been changed, who has new life within him, who's been given a new spirit and a new heart, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Square in the middle of the book, when he's been talking about loving God and walking in the light, And walking as Jesus walked, he pauses to say, one of our greatest problems is that we love the world. And one of the hardest things about the world is that we don't realize the extent to which it's entrapping us. Here he straight out says, you can have success in living in obedience to God though you are still in the world. Do you remember Jesus praying for his disciples in the upper room? Do you remember how he was saying, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to protect them as they are my witnesses here in the world. I want them not to be of the world, but I need them in the world to be my witnesses. Consequently, when we think this can't be 
done. It is not true. The one born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The faith that we exhibit is the ticket that in a sense allows God to give us this new life. If you think of it as a debt you cannot pay and an offer to pay that debt on your behalf, it doesn't work unless you accept that payment. When I was living in Iowa, a group of us, including friends of mine, came out to California on vacation, and we went surfing with my brother. <clears throat> and we were parked in a lot uh, right on the beach, and I said, how do I pay for parking here? He says, well, you can't pay here. It's, it's way over there. You've got to walk about a quarter mile. He says, don't worry. They never check. So we went surfing, came back. I had a $62 ticket on my windshield. <laughs> And my friend from Iowa felt so badly for me, he says, I'll pay for it. And I said, no, no, I, it's my fault. I didn't walk the quarter mile. I was wrong to take the advice. They never check. It's my fault. I'm the sinner. I deserve the parking ticket. When we got back to Iowa, he mailed me a check, a check for $62. I refused to cash his check. Every month when he was trying to balance his checkbook, <laughs> he would call me up and say, cash the check. And I would regularly say, no, I will not. I would not accept his offer of grace. Do you know people do that with God? Do you know that God offers to pay our debt if we will allow Jesus Christ's blood that was shed on our behalf to be applied to our account? And you know there are stubborn people who understand the whole scenario and understand if I were to accept his payment, my debt would be paid. And in their stubbornness, in their selfishness, in their self-focus, in their rebellion against God, they'll say, I will not cash the check. He says, it's our faith which then has caused God to give us new birth allowed God to give us new birth, that has then enabled us to overcome the world and live in victory, to live in obedience to him and to live in a way that pleases him. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See how he interweaves the various tests and the various affirmations of how we would live in light of our desire to be in relationship with him. The next paragraph uh, enters into one of uh, the first difficult passages uh, in this section uh, to interpret. And we wonder, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, when he speaks of the one who overcomes the world, who enables us to do this, this is Jesus, the Son of God. Referring to Jesus, the Son of God, he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. If you read uh, Martin Luther, if you read John Calvin, as they were arguing back and forth during the Reformation, uh, they both agreed uh, that the, uh, <clears throat> these interpretations here have to do 
uh, with baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you happen to know what the main controversy between John Calvin and Martin Luther were, it was what baptism and the Lord's Supper were meant to convey and how to administer those properly. So since they thought so much about them, their immediate answer to this section was this. Water, we would think of as, for example, the washing of the water of the word. We would think of uh, water baptism, since water and blood are put together. Uh, Some have said, could it be referring to Jesus on the cross and the water and blood that poured out of his side? We start guessing about other passages of Scripture. But if context is the best tool to use to understand, we would ask ourselves, does this have anything to do with Sorinthus? Sorinthus, in his false wisdom, remember, unbelieving people think themselves to be wise when they are not, they're fools, trying to solve the problem of the incarnation and the problem of the Trinity reimagined Christian theology and said that Jesus Christ is just a man upon whom God dwelt in the sense of possessing and controlling. And he said, it appears from the scripture that when God came upon the man Jesus, it was at his baptism. So, Serenthus had no problem of a connection between God and the man Jesus regarding baptism. But Serenthus thought that the death of Christ was a defeat. And he couldn't imagine that God would have anything to do with the defeat of the cross. And you remember that uh, many of the Jews themselves wondered, how could this possibly have ever been the Messiah? Because they didn't tend to remember the portions of the scripture they didn't like, like Isaiah 53, for example, in the servant song. Serenthus thought that the Logos of God came upon the human man, Jesus Christ, at his baptism, enabled him the power that we saw in him during his life, but abandoned him just before the crucifixion. So if you understand that he would admit the connection with water, but not the crucifixion, read it this way. Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And he's saying there is a real incarnation, that he is the second person of the Trinity who joined us as a member of our race, being fully human, one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, one person. And God was with him all the way through, even through the shedding of his blood on the cross, which is the manner in which we were saved. Verse 7, he says, And it is the Holy Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Consequently, verse 8, For there are then three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. In Jewish thinking, you needed two witnesses. 
even better if you had three. And so in his thinking, he's bringing together witnesses of a genuine incarnation. He says the Holy Spirit testifies this is true, and also the actions of Jesus and God's working with Jesus in his baptism and his crucifixion. Remember, his baptism is when he declared him publicly to be the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says, therefore, there are three that testify and are in agreement. This is Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. Therefore, if what God has said is true, you can take him at his word, that you have been given salvation. And this is the great affirmation at the end of the book that should calm our spirits and cause us to know that we are secure in him. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Meaning that when we believe in the Son of God, since he has returned to the Father, together the Father and Son have sent the Holy Spirit to us, and we now have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, And internally to our being, the Spirit is confirming within us the truth of these doctrines. He says, since you believed in the Son of God, you have the witness, that would be the Spirit, in yourself. And the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. Let's state it as clearly as possible. Verse 11, the witness is this. That God has given us eternal life. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift that we receive. The gift is eternal life. Not eternal probation, but eternal life. Life that begins at the moment of salvation. John 10.10 calls it abundant life. John 7 calls it rivers of water, river, living water. The Holy Spirit is giving within us this flowing life that comes out. He has given us this eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's as clear as that. The Jewish religious leaders had said to Jesus, God is our Father, we know Him, you we do not know. The truth of the matter is, the only access to the Father is through the Son. And Old Testament saints, who did have relationship with the Father, were His sheep, who recognized the shepherd's voice, And did respond to him and recognized him as the son from the father. And even the works that he were doing was doing were in tune with what was predicted that the Messiah would do in the messianic kingdom. So the lame walk, the blind see and the like. We can know with certainty, therefore, he says. That God has given us eternal life. The life is in his son. If you have the son, you have life. There is no access any other way. I described that uh, early in my life, I was nervous about uh, the salvation experience that I'd had as a young person. 
because I'd seen some inconsistency in my life. You've heard doctors sometimes say, take two aspirin, call me in the morning. I'd say, take two aspirin, read the book of Galatians, call me in the morning. He is saying here clearly that I want you to know with certainty that you really are a child of God. You should be nervous, however, about the way in which you are walking. You need to walk in the light as I am in the light to have fellowship with me. You must take the problem of sin seriously. You must confess your sin to remain in the family forgiveness. I'm writing so that you may not sin, but if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But I don't want you to think that you can't know. I don't want you to be like the majority of people in America who would say, well, I hope I will go, into he- go to heaven, but I have no idea if I will or not, because how could anyone possibly know? There are people who will even say, well, you know, Jesus Christ has done his 98%. I'm busy about doing my 2%. And the answer is no, no, no. What if I mess up my 2%? I want you to know that you have eternal life because you have relationship with Jesus Christ. If I have the Spirit within me, That spirit wouldn't be there unless I have relationship with God. I can know for certain. Then he says, let me give you a little test that will help you here to clarify he's really there. I am going to describe to you how to pray. And I'm going to describe to you how to have positive answers to your prayers. And when God answers your prayer, I want you to say to yourself, you know what? I commune with God. I know his will. I pray according to his will. He hears me. I receive the answers to my prayers. I'm in fellowship with God. He's answering my prayers. You know that uh, that is not so common. There are religious people who try to bring their gifts to the altar and God says, You're not right with your brother. Just leave the gift there. Go get right with your brother. Then come back to the altar with the gift. Uh, We know that there are people who break bread with us, for example, who are not in fellowship with God. And he says they need to examine themselves. Otherwise, there may be discipline. The discipline could be in varieties of severity. They could be sick. They could be taken home early. That's a possibility. But I want you to sense assurance of your salvation through answered prayer. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin 
not leading to death. I recently watched a, a Disney movie again. I'd seen it years ago. I watched it again. It's about a husband and wife uh, who had a goal for their life of a trip that they were going to take. Uh, when the old man finally takes a trip with a Boy Scout kind of character, they run into these uh, very strange dogs uh, who can actually talk because of a uh, mechanical device that enables them to speak. And one of the funny things about the dogs is they are trying to concentrate on their task, but the moment that they see a squirrel, they become immediately distracted and, and say squirrel and go running off after the squirrel. A lot of biblical interpreters see squirrels every time they look at the text. And so their curiosity is piqued when he says there is a sin leading to death. And they then forget everything about context and they go on a squirrel hunt for sins leading to death. And so they go to 1 Corinthians 10 or they go to the Gospels regarding uh, the unpardonable sin And they forget the whole point of the passage is not what the sin leading to death is. The whole point of the passage is, I'm teaching you how to pray. and teaching you how to get answers to your prayers. And it's going to assure you of your salvation. In fact, this is even more hilarious. John says specifically, repeatedly, don't pray for the people who commit sins unto death. That means you don't have to do anything. So you don't even have to know what that is. (laughs) So stop seeing squirrels and pay attention to what he says. Okay, here's what he actually says. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Verse 13. This is the confidence that we have in him. Verse 14. Ask according to his will. You'd say, well, what is his will? Well, study to know his will. Walk with him in the light as he is in the light, and increasingly you will know his will. If my parents, not my parents, if my children or my grandchildren ask me for something that is dangerous, I am going to say no. If they ask me for something that breeds disunity, I am going to say no. If they are selfish in what they ask for, I'm going to say no. Some of these things are self-evident. He says, ask correctly, wisely, according to my will. I will give you the request. You'll receive repetitive assurance of your salvation and your faith in me will deepen. We will continuously ask for bolder and bolder things within his will as we learn to trust him more and more deeply. Verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked for him. So when we're praying according to his will, he hears us. Husbands who mistreat their wives are specifically told, don't expect God to be answering your prayers. Your prayers have been hindered because of your mistreatment of your wife. So if that is true, we should make sure that we are walking in fellowship with him as we are praying and we're not living selfishly and meanly among other people and then whipping around and saying, you are my butler. I am calling on you to jump at the barks of my command. That would be foolishness. 
Here is his contextual application of an example, which there could be many, of things you could pray for that would be according to his will. This is coming right out of the problem of the book. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin. Now, is that true in this book? Yes, the book is all about you have such a broad tolerance of sin that you've been sinning way, way, way more than should be tolerated. And so I'm trying to sensitize you to your problem of sin. So now, as you're becoming increasingly sensitive to what sin is, a lot of you who are reading this are going to realize, I've been living in sin. I need to confess my sin. Some of them who are now under conviction are not going to be quick to repent. They're going to be arguing with God as to what sin is and what isn't sin. And they're going to be redefining it to include themselves in the parameters of this is perfectly fine. If you listen to yourself, deceive yourself. And that word is biblical. It's right in chapter one. He says you're deceiving yourself. He also says you're calling God a liar. Listen to him describe what it looks like not to sin. It means you're walking in the light as he is walking. It means you are walking as Jesus walked. It means you're walking by showing love to the brothers. When you're outside that parameter, you should be convicted of these sins and you should be wanting to repent. So he says, if you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, that'll be a ton of the brothers you're praying for. You know that this is God's will. So ask and God will give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. When he says life there, then everybody gets all excited. He's talking about eternal life. He started out calling him a brother. He's not talking about unsaved people. He's talking about brothers here. And the life he's giving him is continuous fellowship of relationship with God. That's how he's been describing life. He describes it as eternal life, but he's also describing it as a fellowship with God. You will restore a brother. Go read Galatians 6.1, great passage. You'll restore a brother if you pray and ask God to work in his life. You know this is God's will. Pray that God will restore this brother You come alongside and help that brother, Galatians 6, 1. Encourage him back into fellowship with God. You're praying according to God's will. When he answers this, praise him and say, here is another evidence that God is at work in my life. Then, in order to entice those who chase squirrels, he says, I'm not talking about those other people. There's a sin leading to death. I don't say he should make requests for this. And he even says what kind of death we're talking about. He says, we're talking about unrighteousness that is sin that leads to death. Who are the other people in the book that he would tell you not to pray for? So if we've got these apostates, if we've got these false teachers, if we've got brothers who are confused because they're living in sin, if we have people who are backslidden if we have people who think they're saved when they're not 
Who would he say, don't pray for? It's worthless. It's not going to work. It's these false teachers, these antichrists, who went out from us because they really are not of us. He says, I don't say you should be praying for them. What I'm asking you to do is to pray for those that God would seek to redeem. Therefore, learn to pray and learn to see God's encouragement of your life as you receive answered prayer. He ends the letter in verses 18 through 21 with great affirmations. Notice the summary of the entire book. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We can know him because of the truth that he has revealed to us through his word. And as a little bit of an appendix, he ends with a problem that they had culturally, which was hanging out with the unbelievers at the feasts, worshiping idols. And he's saying, guys, be careful. I don't want you drawn into this disobedience of joining in with people at these feasts as they're eating meat offered to idols and as they are honoring their idols. He says, be very careful to keep yourself from idols. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, we come before you and ask that you would help us as we seek to apply these things. May we walk in the light as you are in the light. May we walk as your son walked. May we keep your commandments. Surely they're not burdensome. And Father, we would ask that we would love our brothers as you have shown us love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.